The Book of Job. It's pretty much become synonymous with Christmas, not the Book of Job. Uh, I'm talking about the Frank Capra holiday classic, It's a Wonderful Life. Now, if you've seen this film, you know that it's about George Bailey, portrayed classically by Jimmy Stewart, right, who through a series of hardships comes to the conclusion one Christmas Eve that the world would be better off without him. Now, it's primarily through the suggestion of his crotchety nemesis, Mr. Potter, who makes the declaration that George is worth more dead than alive. Kathleen Irvin, who authors the cheerfully entitled Failure magazine, says, etched into our collective memory at its core, It's a Wonderful Life, is a parable about a good, honest man who, after years of struggling to do the right thing, questions his life and the choices he's made. Teetering on the brink of despair, George finally concludes that his life has been a failure. Surmising that things might have been better if he'd never been born, he contemplates suicide. But in considering the film's success, she says, while It's a Wonderful Life is often referred to as a sentimental movie, the issues it presents, the question, what makes a person a failure or success, is hardly lighthearted. Perhaps that accounts for the strong reaction the film evokes. In other words, she says the reason that this film has risen from the ashes of what was originally a Hollywood flop, don't know if you knew that, a little bit of tri movie trivia for you there, um, but the reason that it became one of the most popular films of all time is quite simply because everybody can relate to it. From time to time, almost everyone's probably dealt with thoughts or feelings of, is this really all worth it? Might things have been better if I hadn't been born? Maybe I should just end it all. In fact, very godly men in the Bible, men like Moses and Elijah, cried out to God that he would take their lives. Listen to these statistics. Around the world... Over one million people die by suicide every year. The global suicide rate is 16 people per 100,000 in population. On average, one person dies by suicide every 40 seconds. It is now the principal cause of death among young people. In addition, statistics reveal that incidents of euthanasia and assisted suicide are on the rise. And as I read those statistics, I recall a former or a forum that was hosted by the former Irish president, Mary McAleese, back in 2005 that was entitled Suicide, Everybody's Problem. And yet, as I delved into this topic, as I was preparing for this morning, there tends to be a bit of a vacuum or a dearth of good, honest, spiritual content when it comes to this particular topic. There's a Hebrew proverb that says, rescue those who are drawn towards death. And this morning, as we conclude our Light in the Darkness series, we're going to be talking about suicide. Now, I'm not going to try to examine all the whys that a person might consider suicide. I'm not going to offer some sort of historical or cultural comparison of suicide down through the ages. In other words, in other words I'm fully aware of the fact that there will be plenty that I don't have time to talk about this morning. Because invariably, there's always that person who comments on suicide or on YouTube that says, you didn't talk about this. Yes, I know, because we don't have time to talk about every single thing. What I do want to talk about this morning is offer some thoughts of what I believe from the Bible suicide is. And I don't mean an intellectual analysis or a textbook definition. Everybody knows what suicide is. Webster's Expanded Dictionary defines it as self-murder the voluntary taking of one's own life. What I would like to discuss 
is what I believe suicide is at its core. What is the essence of suicide? What is the principle at work behind it? And for that, again, we're in the book of Job. I mentioned earlier, there's actually quite a few examples we might look at from the Bible. Uh, The Bible sets forth at least seven people who committed suicide or ordered the taking of their own lives. Abimelech in Judges chapter 9, Samson in Judges 16, King Saul in 1 Samuel 31, his own armor bearer in the same chapter, Ahithophel in 2 Samuel chapter 16 or 17, Zimri in 1 Kings chapter 16, and of course Judas Iscariot in Matthew chapter 17. So it's interesting, in the Bible, it does not shy away from the reality of suicide. Even as this one secular historian notes, a non-Christian, whenever the Bible mentions these things, the occasions of such deaths are merely described simply, briefly, and actual or factually. But what we have in the book of Job is, in my opinion, the closest thing to what might be going on in the psyche of someone who has suicidal thoughts. Think of it this way. If we want to learn what the Bible has to say about suicide, it's probably more helpful to look at someone who was presented with the option but didn't do it than to look at someone who actually commits the act. And that's what I believe we have in the book of Job. Now, most of us are familiar with the book of Job. I'll start by saying that scholars believe the book of Job is the oldest book of the Bible, even though it doesn't appear first. It's set somewhere probably shortly after the flood of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 through 10. Why that's important is because in this the opening or the opening of the oldest book of the Bible, we see a man who experiences terrible tragedy and loss. And it will be suggested to him that he take his own life. And again, I think in that we get a glimpse into his mindset. Now, we know from Job chapter one, this man was extremely prosperous. We read that he had seven sons, he had three daughters, his possessions include 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys in a very large household. Verse 3 says, this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. But Job was also extremely pious or godly. Verse 5 says, Job would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings for his children because he said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. On two occasions, God himself says of Job, there is none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Now look, it would be one thing if you said that about yourself, right? Or it'd be another thing if a person said that about you. But when the holy God of the universe who cannot lie makes that statement about your character, that's saying something. Job was extremely prosperous, he was extremely pious, he was rich and religious. But in one day, in one day, watch what happens here. Chapter 1, verse 13, we read, There was a day when Job's sons and daughters, again, all ten of them, are eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the the donkeys were feeding, When the Sabians raided and took them away, indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 16, while he was still speaking, another came and said, 
The fire of God fell from heaven and burned the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, it's like a bad joke. Another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and raided the camels and took them and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. For one thing, Job's got some lucky servants who have survived these incidents to come and bring him this information. But watch verse 18. While he was still speaking, another came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking at their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. In one day, all ten of Job's children are dead. His entire portfolio drops by 100%. By the way, according to the prices of the assets mentioned in this chapter, because I think it's kind of lost on us, according to a 2014 article, Job's net worth was about $56 million. It's gone in one day. All his kids are dead. And that's not all. Okay, this guy's having the the day to end all bad days, but then chapter 2, verse 7 says, he was struck with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a boil, but they are extremely painful. And this guy's got them all over his body. Taken together, this is what we read about Job's physical condition. He suffers intense pain, peeling and darkened skin, pus-filled sores, anorexia, emaciation, fever, depression, weeping, sleeplessness, nightmares, bad breath, failing vision, rotting teeth, and this lasted for months, by the way. Understand the suggestion of it's a wonderful life is just about the last thing that Job would want to hear at this point. Now, that certainly wasn't true for Job's wife. She says to him down in verse 9 of chapter 2, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Okay, all joking aside, we are looking at one of the oldest books, possibly one of the oldest documents in all of human history. And I'm going to suggest to you that Job's wife is one of the earliest lobbyists for assisted suicide. She basically looks at him and says, why don't you kill yourself? Just put yourself out of your misery. Why do you bother going on living? And I would suggest that contained behind her statement is perhaps a clue to what's going on behind suicide. I'm going to borrow a phrase from Paul the Apostle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, he says, Though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh, because the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, the casting down of arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now understand, when Paul talks about the knowledge of God, he's not talking about an intellectual agreement that there is a God. The Greek word he uses here is gnosis, which is a specific word that means to know by experience. Paul here is describing someone not who knows about God, but someone who knows God by experience. And I would suggest that this, this is what suicide is. Suicide is a suggestion. It is an alternative 
an option that rises up in a person's mind that is in opposition or to challenge what that person knows to be true of God. Listen carefully again to what Job's wife says to him. She says, curse God and die. She does not say, die. She first assigns blame for what's happening to Job to God. She basically says to Job, you know this is God's fault. You understand that God is the one putting you through this. So why don't you curse God and die? Now, if we were to take the time and go back to the opening chapter of the book of Job, we would see very clearly that it's not God who is doing these things to Job. It is quite clearly from Satan. From the opening chapters of the Bible, God is revealed as a loving creator, the originator, the sustainer of all life. In Genesis 2-7, he breathes into man's nostrils and man becomes a living being. John chapter 1 says, in him, in God, was life. The word used there for life is zoe. It's a Greek word from where we get our English word zoology, and it refers to the very essence of life. The Bible says, in God, in him, is the essence of life. Now, as we've talked about in weeks gone by, you and I, mankind, we have an enemy, kind of like George Bailey, right? But a lot worse than Mr. Potter. He's mentioned several times and in several different ways in the Bible. The devil, the serpent, the dragon, the destroyer, the thief, the father of lies. The book of Job presents him as Satan. Now, that's not a proper name. It's a title. It's a word that means opponent, or adversary, and that is who the devil is. He is opposed to man. Why is that? Well, there's all different kinds of theory about this, but perhaps it has something to do with this. Now, I'm going to tell you, hang on, because i got to move quick. But for those of you who are sitting here this morning thinking, well, you know what, Kevin, I've never really considered suicidal thoughts before, so I don't really need to hear this Bible study. I guarantee you, you may one day come across somebody who does. And because you're here, God knew you needed to hear this. Okay, follow me on this. Ezekiel chapter 28 tells us that this being, Satan, who was originally named Lucifer, Isaiah chapter 14. Listen to this description. He was the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Every precious stone was his covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper. The list just goes on and on. You were the anointed cherub who covers on the holy mountain of God. Listen, perfect in all your ways. That's who Lucifer was until, Scripture says, until you sinned. Now, what was the sin of Lucifer, of this perfect, glorious, beautiful creation of God. Isaiah chapter 14 helps out. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut to the ground because you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will be like the most high or God. That's important. Remember that. Therefore, back to Ezekiel chapter 28, God says, I cast you out as a profane thing of the mountain of God. I destroyed you from the midst of the fiery stones. Now listen, when Lucifer is cast out of the mountain of God, 
Where does he go? Ezekiel chapter 28 says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, now this is interesting because what else do we know about Eden? We go all the way back to the opening chapters of the Bible. We read about God's creative act. So day one, light is created. And I love reading these chapters. It's kind of like on Friday night, you know, we created something and it's cool to sit back and go, that's good. You know, so God creates light. He's like, it's good. Day two, God creates the sky and he says, it's good. Day three, God creates the dry land, the seas, the plants, and the trees. It's good. Day four, the sun, the moon, and stars. It's good. Day five, sea creatures and creatures that fly. It's good. Day six, animals on land. It's good. And finally, God creates human beings, and he says, very good. Now, of all these things that God created, how many of them were created in the image and likeness of God. Just one, man. Now that's interesting because where did God place the man? Genesis 2.15 says, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. The garden of Eden. Somebody else is in the garden of Eden. We just read it a moment ago. Ezekiel 28, Lucifer has been cast out of the mountain of God and he is in Eden, the garden of God. And Isaiah 14.14 tells us that The sin of Lucifer was to say in his heart, I will be like God, but he wasn't. He was beautiful. He was wise. He was glorious. He was perfect, according to Scripture. But he was not like God, but he wanted to be. And for that, he's cast out of God's presence into the Garden of Eden Where God places the man and the woman, the only things in all of creation, check this out, we're told, who are made in the likeness of God. Meaning, meaning, not only are we to God, or to Satan, a constant reminder of the God that he hates. When Satan looks at you and me, we remind him of God because we're the only things made in the likeness of God But I would say, more than that, we are a constant reminder to Satan of something that he himself wanted to be and could never attain. So what does he do? Well, he comes after us to destroy us with an insane hatred. Do you understand Satan doesn't want to just annoy you? He doesn't want to just bug you. He wants to absolutely kill you and destroy your life because you remind him of God that he wanted to be like and he can't be. So he thinks, well, I can't do anything to God. I'll destroy them because they remind me of him. Now watch what happens. God says to the man and the woman of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but there's this one tree in the middle of the garden. I'm paraphrasing. He says, Don't eat of that because in the day that you eat of it, it will surely kill you. Now, everybody needs to see this is what we call a protective command, right? This is God saying there is a thing over there that will kill you. And I don't want that to happen to you, so stay away from it. This is God trying to protect man. 
God does not say to the man, don't eat from the tree because in the day that you do, I will kill you. He says, if you eat it, it will kill you. And I don't want that to happen to you because I didn't create you to die. I created you to live. But we read Genesis chapter 3, we have this enemy of mankind who absolutely hates us, who is more cunning than any beast of the field that the Lord God who made, who slithers up to the woman and he says, did God really say that? Did God really say that you can't eat of every tree of the garden? He says, you're not going to die. Listen to how diabolical this is. He says, God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you will be what? Like God. And when you understand that he deceives the woman with the very thing that he himself wanted, it is so twisted and diabolical and evil and sinister. Man falls, he inherits a sin nature, death spreads to everyone. The statistics on death are staggering. One out of every one person dies. Now, I'm going to make a statement. It's one of those statements that for some people, it's probably going to bug you, right? Somebody's going to think it's cold or contradictory, but here's the deal. Suicide's not the problem. Now, suicide is a problem, but suicide is not the problem. When you boil it down to its very basic, suicide's a form of death. Now, again, I know that to some people that could sound very cold, but even when you research the statistics so suicide is characterized or categorized as a form of death. So listen, check this out. Follow me on this. You realize there could be no such thing as suicide if there was no such thing as death. If it was physically impossible for a person to die, then it would be physically impossible for a person to commit suicide. In the same way that if there was no such thing as a gun, it would be impossible for you to shoot yourself. If there was no such thing as a knife, you would not be able to stab yourself. If there was no poison of any kind that existed on the planet, you would not be able to poison yourself. If death didn't exist, you would not be able to commit suicide. So the Bible sets forth God as this loving creator, the originator, the sustainer of all life, who breathes into man of his very essence. And we become this living being. God places him in the garden and says, this thing will kill you, so stay away from it because I don't want you to die. That's not why I created you. I created you to live, but we have an enemy who hates us, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, who says, that's not going to happen. And he tricks the man, and death enters the picture. But who gets blamed? Same person Job's wife tries to blame in Job's situation. Remember some of the things that we read back in chapter 1? Let me just remind you of them again. The fire fell from heaven. A great wind came across the wilderness and struck the house and fell. Things like tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, you know what they're called in insurance policies? Acts of God. I've never read a single insurance policy that refers to any of those things as acts of Satan. <laughs> Maybe you could do something about that, David. <laughs> acts of God, 
right? I'll never forget back in 2004, as the result of the 2004, uh, I already said 2004, as the result of the tsunami in Thailand, there was the co cover of a magazine called Global Village. And it was the picture of a woman. And she was sort of clutching the remains of everything she had lost. And she had upturned face to the sky where clearly she was just in absolute agony. And the headline read, Some Loving God. That's right out of the book of Job. Everything that happened to Job, God didn't do. Satan did, but God gets the blame. And if you think about it, that's pretty much the same thing that he tries to do to you and I today. Our enemy comes to attack. Now, he may attack us physically. He may attack us financially. He may attack our family. And in the middle of it all, he'll try to do the same thing to you and I that he tried to do to Job. He'll try to pervert our understanding to blame God that we might entertain thoughts of, just end it. Why do you put up with his crap? Why do you let him do this to you? And I'm going to suggest to you that the suggestion of suicide is what Paul says is something that exalts itself. It rises up to challenge the knowledge of God. See, suicide is more than hopelessness. Suicide is more than despair. It's more than depression or grief or loneliness. Now, it may involve those things. Suicide comes from the loss of the reality of who God is in a person's estimation. Now, that may have been Job's wife's mentality, but it wasn't necessarily Job's mentality. We get a glimpse of it back in chapter 1. As the result of everything he's experienced, all ten of his children, dead. All of his physical possessions, gone. In chapter 1, verse 21, we sang it a moment ago. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the next verse is so revealing because it says, in all of this, Job did not sin, listen, or charge God with wrong, which is exactly what the enemy's trying to get him to do. You see, the suggestion of suicide is, do yourself in. Job's mentality is, no, God gave me life. God can take my life. Job understands that God is still in control, no matter what happens. God's not auditioning for the part, right? God is God, and we're not. You see, the suggestion of suicide is do yourself in. Job says to his wife in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, you speak as one of the foolish women, which is a very diplomatic rebuke on behalf of Job, I have to say, but not necessarily one I'd suggest that you guys say to your wives. Um, unless, of course, she suggests that you kill yourself, because then it would be biblical for you to say that to her. But it's really important that, listen, we understand, he's not accusing his wife of being a foolish woman. He's saying, you're speaking like a foolish person. You're thinking like a foolish person, because... It is the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. Reminds me of the slogan of the Church of Euthanasia. 
Maybe you didn't know such an organization existed. Here's their slogan, save the planet, kill yourself. The four pillars of the church of euthanasia, abortion, cannibalism, sodomy, and suicide. It's a real organization. That's where we are as a society. Professing to be wise, Romans chapter 1, we have become idiots. We're fools. What's the answer? Hosea chapter 4, God says, my people are destroyed for lack of what? Knowledge. What's the answer? Two chapters later, Hosea answers. He says, therefore, let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of God. God's people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, so let's pursue the knowledge of God. Now again, he's not talking about the intellectual agreement that there is a God. He's talking about the personal experience of knowing God as who God has revealed himself to be in the Bible. See, it's all who you know. You ever heard that expression before? It's all who you know. It's kind of like we talked about when we looked at depression. The answer is not why, it's a who. It's like we talked about last week with addiction. The answer is not how, it's a who. Well, this morning, the answer for suicide, it's not a what, it's a who. Suicide is the suggestion of the enemy of mankind who wants to destroy us that rises up in opposition to challenge who God is as he has revealed himself in the scripture. What's the answer? How do we resist the temptation to give in to that suggestion? Same way Job did. Job did. You have to know God. You have to know not that there is a God. You have to know God personally. You have to actively know and pursue an understanding of who he is, that he is a loving creator, the originator, the sustainer of all life, whose thoughts toward us are thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give us a future and a hope. Here's the amazing thing. If you know how the book of Job turns out, by the end of this book, Job is not only blessed. Chapter 42 says, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. But Job is not only blessed. Job comes out of this experience with such a deep revelation of who God is. Think about it. If Job had listened to his wife and killed himself, not only would he have not gotten the blessing, but he would have missed out on the revelation of who God is, which is exactly what the enemy wants. Does it not make sense that our enemy would come to a person who's in desperate circumstances and say to that person, kill yourself to prevent that person from going on to have a revelation of who God is. God wants us to know him. The amazing thing is, is that we can know him. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus Christ is God with us. Emmanuel, John 10.10, I referenced this earlier. Jesus says straight up about our enemy that the thief, meaning Satan, comes to do three things, to steal, to kill, and destroy. But by comparison, he said, I came so that you could have life 
and, and not just have life, but that you could have it more abundantly. See, our life with Jesus is more than our life without Jesus. And somebody might be thinking, Kevin, you don't understand. That's the whole problem. I don't want to live. I do not want to live. And I would suggest this, that if you don't know Jesus, you don't know life. Now, I'm not making that up. I stand on the authority of God's word. 1 John 5, 12 makes it super simple. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And I love the literal translation of the Greek. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. See, if you don't know Jesus, you're not living the life. You're living the death. You are one of the walking dead. That's how the Bible describes the spiritual plight of man. We are in a state of up and moving around and we're animated, but we're dead. We're separated from God. And the whole point of this series is that God was willing to take on human form and step down into the middle of our dark world and shine like a light so that we would be, we would be drawn to him. Like we said last week, the condemnation, what damns people isn't God, it's that men love darkness rather than light. Men want to be fools. In Romans, where it talks about man suppresses the truth of God. The word suppress is a nautical term. It means you have to steer against the current. The Bible teaches very plainly that everyone is born knowing there is a God. And you can say, well, Kevin, I don't really believe that. I don't care because I have the truth of God's word. I have the truth of God's word. Like, it doesn't matter what your opinion is. I'm not going to elevate my opinion over the Bible. I'm not going to elevate my experience over the Bible. I'm not going to elevate my feelings over the Bible. God says straight up, everybody knows there's a God, and you have to work. You have to steer against the current to live in such a way where you deny that there's a God. Because God has clearly, clearly revealed himself to man. And he wants us to know. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know life. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. But there's a way out of that, and it's not by killing yourself. It's by letting Jesus die for you. There is this wicked lie that's been propagated throughout our society that if a person dies they're going to a better place. Now, for the Christian, that is certainly true. But for the person who does not know Christ, I got news for you. This world is as good as it's ever going to get. For the Christian, this world's as bad as it's ever going to get. For the person who doesn't know Jesus, this world's as good as it's ever going to get. And there are people out there who commit suicide thinking they're leaving a bad place to go to a better place I think nowhere is this more apparent than in a video that was left by Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris 
back in 1999 at the Columbine Massacre. They made a video before they went and massacred those 13 students and injured 21 other, others. They said, we know what we're going to do. We're going to kill these students. Then we're going to kill ourselves. But we know we're going to a better place. That is absolutely diabolical. That Satan would convince people that without Christ to die, you're going to a better, better place. The Bible presents death as an enemy of mankind, an enemy that has to be defeated. And this is what the whole point of Christmas is about. This is what the Bible teaches. 1 John 3, 8 says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, or born, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Here's a passage that most people don't put together with Christmas. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, He himself, meaning Jesus, had to be made in all things like you and I, listen, that through death he might destroy him, meaning Satan, who had the power of death and release those through who fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about. Guys, come to Christ this morning. You know, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, come to Christ. If you are here this morning and you are wrestling with thoughts, suicidal thoughts, come talk to somebody about that. Help. Let us come alongside you to help get the professional help you need. But again, more than anything, just come to the Lord. Come to the Lord this morning. Don't buy into the lie of the enemy. Don't just know about God. Know God. Know Jesus. Know the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for an opportunity to study your word this morning, to be gathered together in your house as your people, in your presence, worshiping you. And Lord God, I just want to pray for anyone here this morning who is struggling or watching online who may be struggling with these particular thoughts. I just pray that your word this morning will just illuminate the, the fallacy of some of the, the lies that we can buy into that have been perpetuated through our society. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would draw people to yourself as we just pause for a few moments now at the end of our service, God to just worship. Holy Spirit, would you just work on people's hearts? There's a veil that has to be lifted. And we can't lift that veil. Only you can do that. And so I just pray that in Jesus' name, you would lift the veil this morning that people would believe in Jesus, that they would choose to make a decision to rest their hope fully upon the hope in the person of Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you so much that you came to dwell amongst us, that we might know you, that you, it would have been so easy for you to just cast us off and say, well, I'll start all over again. But you didn't. You rescued us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, that you love us. Thank you that you have life and you want to give it to us. In Jesus' name, amen.